What does the future hold? How uncertain is it? What disaster awaits around the corner? What will you hear when you turn on the news tomorrow morning? Will our nation come under attack again? You know, time tends to dull our awareness of these things, of dangers, but I remember watching the television on September 11th. I don't even have to tell you the year. You know what I'm talking about. It was just over a decade ago. And I saw the airplanes hit the towers. And I saw the towers collapse into Manhattan Island on New York City. And I saw the thousands fleeing the debris. And I knew that thousands of deaths occurred in that moment. And I felt not just a sadness at the tragic loss that occurred at that moment, but also in my, in my gut a real sense of terror and vulnerability. Our national security was at stake, and I even felt my personal security threatened. Now, in attacking New York City, the terrorists were not just wanting to instill a sense of terror and fear and insecurity in us, but they were also threatening our economic security. For those of you who've been to New York City, you know that the Twin Towers stood just a few blocks from Wall Street, the financial center of our nation, in many ways the financial center of the world. The effects of that, as well as the financial crisis of 2008, the mortgage crisis, the reduction in the stock market, the lowering of home values, all these things precipitated the Great Recession, which we are still in the process of recovering from. Yet even today, as we are here, there are questions that concern us. There's an election in Greece today. Probably going to have an effect economically because they may or may not choose leaders who will pull them out of the European economic system. It's pretty obvious that Iran is working on a nuclear weapon. What's going to happen with that? If they get one, will they attack Israel? Would the United States get drawn into such a conflict? Would they sell such a weapon to terrorists? Would they use it to attack our country once again? Dangers, threats, turmoil, trouble. What do we do with it all? Where do we turn in the face of such dangers? Where are the answers? What policies do we pursue? What leaders do we support? How do we deal with this as the people of God? Well, such dangers, such questions, and even more were faced by the people and the leaders of the little nation of Israel, of the little southern kingdom of Judah, over 700 years ago, before, over 700 years before Christ even came to this earth. And that was the time when the prophet Isaiah was proclaiming to the people of Judah and to the people of Israel the truth of God. As a matter of fact, it's a very dangerous time as we come to Isaiah's chapter 8 and 9 in Israel. There are real threats from the north. First from the northern kingdom of Israel, which is putting together an alliance with what would today be the nation Syria to come down and attack the southern kingdom attack Judah, to attack the king that was in the line of David, to potentially put an end to the Davidic dynasty that God had promised would go on forever and ever, that someone would sit on the throne of King David. People's economic security, people's political security was threatened. Isaiah is talking to them at just such a time. And that's not to mention the real threat of the day. The real threat of the day is a superpower 
called Assyria. The Assyrian army was not to be trifled with. For they were a group that brought desolation and destruction wherever they went, and they were bearing down on this little southern kingdom of Judah. And the leader of the southern kingdom of Judah, of of, of this little piece of Israel, King Ahaz is looking for help. He's looking around. He's saying, who can I make alliances with? Who can I I partner up with that's going to save me from all these threats, all these attacks? And earlier in chapter 7 and even at the beginning of chapter 8, Isaiah has warned King Ahaz, don't trust your alliances. Don't trust people. Put your trust in God. Huh. From a human perspective, doesn't sound like very good political advice, does it? You could end up in real trouble. Well, the section we're looking at this morning, starting in chapter 8, verse 11, through chapter 9, verse 7, is a section that addresses a stark contrast between those who are walking in the Lord and where they put their trust and what they should do versus those who are walking in the way of the people, in the way of the world, and what the results of their actions will be. And in chapter 9, Isaiah holds out a climactic hope for Israel, for Judah, for all people everywhere of what is to come. Three points in today's outline. Point number one, the first response to the promised king results in death. That's in chapter 8. You'll find it in verses 11, 12, 14, and 15, and 19 through 22. It's kind of mixed in in the first 12 verses that we'll be studying. Point number two, the second response to the promised king results in life. Verses 13, 14, 16, to 18. And then number three, the description of the promised king and his life giving birth and reign. Chapter 9, verses 1 to 7. Well, that brings us to chapter 8, verse 11 of Isaiah. For the Lord spoke thus to me with his strong hand upon me and warned me not to walk in the way of this people, saying, Do not call conspiracy all that this people calls conspiracy, and do not fear what they fear, nor be in dread. In other words, don't be afraid of their threats. Don't be troubled by their schemes. Trust in me, which is what he says in verse 13, but the Lord of hosts, him you shall honor, him you shall regard as holy. Let him be your fear and let him be your dread. Isaiah's advice in the midst of this conflict is that God's people are not to fear what the people of this world fear. God's people are not to fear other men or to fear the conspiracies or schemes of men that swirl around you. No, God says your fear must lie elsewhere. You must fear the Lord and no one else. That is where your fear, your reverence, your awe, your respect, your honor belongs. That is who deserves it. No one else. The result of fearing the Lord or fearing the things of this world will be dramatic. You see, those who fear the Lord are those who appear to be calm amidst the storm because they have a hope, a certain hope, a sure hope in God, in Christ. Verse 14. What is the result of fearing the Lord? And He, the Lord, will become a sanctuary, a place of refuge, a holy place and a stone of offense and a rock of stumbling to both houses of Israel, a trap and a snare to the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and many shall stumble on it. They shall fall and be broken. They shall be snared and taken. The emphasis here in the first part of verse 14 is on the promise of God that the Lord Himself will be their sanctuary. He will be their shelter in the midst of the storm. 
Now, we miss something when we just look at this passage from our situation here in Omaha in the 21st century. Because Isaiah lived in Jerusalem. There was a sanctuary within walking distance of where he lived. There was a temple, the Temple of Solomon, the place where the holy place exists. But yet he is telling people of Israel, trust in the Lord. He is your sanctuary. He is the one who will provide shelter to you in the midst of the storm. He is your refuge, your place of safety. Now we turn to those whose response to the promised king results in death. The first question we have to answer is who is this stone of offense and this rock of stumbling talked about in verse 14? Well, we are told very clearly in the text. It is the Lord who is this stone of offense, this rock of stumbling. While those whose response to the Lord results in life see him as a sanctuary, as a refuge, as a shelter from the storm, those who respond to him by walking in the path of the people, in walking in the path of the world, see the Lord as a stumbling block, as something that's in their way. He is a snare and a trap to them. Who is this Lord identified as a stumbling stone? Well, we're about to come up to chapter 9 and we're about to come into a very messianic passage, a passage talking about the Messiah that is to come, the Savior who is to save Israel's people from their sins. And now Isaiah is giving us a foretaste of what this person and who this person is. He is a stone. Well, what can we learn about stones? Let's let Scripture interpret Scripture for us. Turn to 1 Peter chapter 2 with me. Turn to 1 Peter chapter 2, and we're going to be in verse 4. We're going to let Scripture interpret Scripture. From our perspective, on this side of the sacrifice of Christ on the cross, we see more clearly what Isaiah is saying. Not just about trust in the Lord, but trust in the promised Messiah, Christ, the King who is coming. The Lord who is identified as the stumbling stone in Isaiah 8.14 is Christ himself. Paul says it clearly in Romans 9.33, but in 1 Peter 2, verse 4 through 10, Peter develops the stone as living, chosen, precious, as well as the stone of stumbling and the rock of offense. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 4. As you come to Him, referring to Jesus, as you come to Him, a living stone, rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house, to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. You yourselves, Peter is saying, are being raised up as little living stones to serve the one true God through Christ. And now he's going to quote from the Old Testament starting in verse 6. For it stands in Scripture, Peter says. Now he's quoting from Isaiah chapter 28, verse 16. Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. In other words, whoever believes in him will be saved, will be redeemed. In quoting from Isaiah 28, Peter is saying, this stone is a wonderful thing. It is a precious thing. It is a thing to be cherished because it is a chosen, it is a precious stone. And whoever believes in Him, whoever believes in Christ, will not be put to shame. Verses 7 and 8 take a little different perspective on the stone. Again, quoting from the Old Testament, 
Verse 7. So the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Quoting from Psalm 118. The Jews will reject this one. The Jewish leaders will reject this Messiah. Yet he will be the cornerstone of the work God is doing and the work God will do. Verse 8, here is the quote directly from our verse in verse 14 of chapter 8. And a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word. They stumble because they disobey the word. That is, they disobey the message of the word, which is the gospel. Peter makes it really clear that he's talking about the gospel in 1 Peter 4, verse 17, when he says they disobey the word. The message of the gospel is what he's talking about. As a matter of fact, it is not just the person of Christ that is a stumbling block. It is the work of Christ on the cross as well. Paul specifically describes the crucifixion as that aspect of Christian teaching that causes the unbelieving to stumble in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 23. Paul writes, But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. It is the gospel that is the stumbling block, the gospel in Christ, the one who gave his life on the cross for our sins in payment for the penalty that I deserve to pay as a sinner. His life, death, crucifixion, resurrection resulted in freedom from the domination of sin for believers, results in forgiveness of my sin, and results in eternal life. You see, this stumbling stone that Isaiah is talking about is Christ. And for those who see it as the grace of God, it is a chosen and precious thing. For those who see it as a stumbling block, for those who see it as a rock of offense, It is a rock upon which they fall. It is a rock upon which their lives will be devastated. Two different perspectives on this same thing. And whether it is the New Testament on this side of the cross where we see that in the fullness of time the penalty for sin has been paid completely by the finished work of Christ, or if it is 700 years before Christ and the cross in Isaiah's time, when God's promise of a Messiah and a Savior to deliver His people from their sin was stated in the promises given first to Eve and to Abraham and to David and then pictured and portrayed and foreshadowed in the Passover, in the sacrifices, in the actions of the high priest in the temple, the stumbling stone, the rock of offense, is the same. It is the Messiah. It is the chosen one. It is the anointed one. It is Christ. Turn back with, to, Isaiah, to Isaiah chapter 8 with me. Turn back to Isaiah and chapter 8. So here in Isaiah 8 through verse 14, we have two perspectives laid out for us. Either you view the Lord as a source of comfort, strength, and deliverance in the midst of danger, in the midst of trial, in the midst of threat, or if you view Him as the source of of pain, of suffering, of political, social, and economic disaster. Stated simply, it is the division between trust in Him, His promises, and His provision for sin, or unbelief and rebellion against the Lord. You see, it is the Lord Himself who in His saving intervention becomes a stumbling stone for Israel, for the nation. Now we turn from those whose response results in death back to those whose response results in life in verse 16. Bind up the testimony, Isaiah writes. Seal the teaching. In other words, protect, guard God's word. Guard the prophecy that I am giving you here. 
Bind up the testimony. Seal the teaching among my disciples. I will wait for the Lord who is hiding his face from the house of Jacob. And I will hope in him. Behold, I and the children whom the Lord has given me are signs and portents and symbols in Israel from the Lord of hosts who dwells in Mount Zion. While the world all around them, even though many in Israel would have claimed at this time that they were followers of God, many in Israel would have put themselves in, as a descendant of Abraham and as a descendant of Jacob in a place of religious privilege and standing before God, they were not walking in that way. They were not living that way. They were not truly trusting God in that way. Yet they are called to trust God. They are called to look to Him. Even when those who follow the Lord, as Isaiah says in these verses, even when those who are following the Lord look at their world seemingly falling apart before them, they are waiting on Him. Verse 17, I will wait for the Lord, is Isaiah's response to all this trouble, to all these trials, to all these dangers. And I will hope in Him. Isaiah's response is to wait and hope in the Lord. Isaiah knows the promises of God. And even in the midst of difficult circumstances, even in the midst of bad times, he is trusting God and he is urging the people of Israel to trust God as well and not to trust anything else. Verse 19 we turn back to the different path that the people are following, the path that ends up in distress, in anguish. Verse 19, And when they say to you, inquire of the mediums and the necromancers, the mediums and the necromancers, the popular religions of the day, the popular superstitions of the day, necromancers are those who consult the dead, spiritists, sorcerers. And when they say to you, inquire of the mediums and the necromancers who chirp and mutter, should not a people inquire of their God? That's a rhetorical question. Isaiah is saying, the God of the universe, the creator of all things, has revealed Himself to you in His Word. Should you not look there for answers to life? Instead, what do they do? Should they inquire of the dead on behalf of the living? To the teaching and to the testimony, in other words, to God's law, to God's instructions. If they will not speak according to this Word, it is because they have no dawn. There is no light in them. There is no understanding. There is no knowledge. Getting true and reliable information from them is hopeless because there is only darkness there. It seems one of the key distinctions between those who believe the remnant in Israel who believe, the small group that are still believers, and those who do not fear God and reject Him in their approach, is their approach to troubles and trials in this world. That's where the rubber meets the road. That's where we see where your trust really is. Where do we turn when we need counsel, comfort, or answers? Do we turn to the Lord, to His counsel, to the truth from God? Or do we turn to something else? Now, in their culture, it was mediums and necromancers. What is it in ours? Where do people turn for answers? Where does the culture at large look for answers? Well, you don't have to look very far, do you? 
He can give a whole list of them. Television, the web, social media, self-help books. They could go on and on and on. There's thousands and thousands of places in our information-based society where you can go to look for answers to trials and troubles. You can consult with Dr. Phil. You can watch Oprah. Why would you do that? Why are these people doing that when they have God's Word before them? When they could turn to what God has to say? Because the results are devastating. The results to their lives are given in verses 21 and 22. They will pass through the land greatly distressed and hungry. And when they are hungry, they will be enraged and will speak contemptuously against their king and their God. They will curse their king and their God. They will turn their faces upward and curse God. Verse 22. And they will look to the earth, but behold, distress, darkness, the gloom of anguish, they will be thrust into thick darkness. They will be driven there by following their false gods. By following, by looking for truth in the wrong places. For looking for saviors who are not up to the task and do not satisfy. Or worshiping in the altars, at the altars of this world. That's the result of this kind of behavior. Its philosophy is destruction. Its philosophy is foolishness because it says there is no God. Those who do not fear God, those who do not trust Him, rage at Him, at His face. They are shaking their fist at Him and saying, I won't do it your way, God. I will have it my way. I will have it my way. This is not anything new. How many of you have perhaps heard of the Thomas Jefferson Bible? Thomas Jefferson was not a believer. Thomas Jefferson didn't like a lot of things in his Bible. So when he found something in his Bible that he didn't like, guess what he did? Got his scissors out and he clipped it out of there. Well, when he got all done, guess what he had? A very, very thin Bible, all right? Very thin Bible. Because he got rid of all the things he didn't like. You know, Pat likes to talk about, I've got a new religion. It's called Pattyanity. Well, Thomas Jefferson had that kind of religion. Tommyanity. He just clipped out everything he didn't like and took everything else and sucked it all in. That's what the people of Israel are doing here. A God of their own making, in their own mind, of what they want and what they like. And Isaiah is calling them back to the truth of God's Word. Back to the place where there is hope. Now in these 11 verses we've looked at so far, We've seen a consistent pattern. The word of salvation arrives and along with it comes judgment upon those who reject the word. There's almost always a double-edged character to the promise of deliverance and salvation in God's word. It runs parallel to warnings about the rejection of God and the judgment that will come upon those who continue to rebel against him. Yet there still exists the promise of future redemption. And now Isaiah is going to hold that out to the people. There is a promise of redemption for a time when war will be done away with. Keep in mind, the people of Israel at this point in time have troops staged on their borders ready to attack. War is imminent. The threats are real. Isaiah is now going to tell them 
about the ideal ruler and king who will be not like the evil rulers and kings that pretty much predominated in Judah and in Israel, but will be the ideal, ideal ruler and king who as the prince of peace will bring comfort and security and salvation to those burdened by the dangers, trials, troubles, threats, and turmoil of life. Isaiah has already given us a hint regarding this one, the one who he talked about as a sanctuary, the one who he talked about as a stumbling stone. Now he will give us a fuller and broader description of the promised king and his life-giving reign in verses 1 through 7 of chapter 9. Chapter 9, verse 1. But there will be no gloom for who, for her who was in anguish, referring to Israel. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulon and the land of Naphtali. But in the later time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. Her in the immediate context here is the nation Israel. It is the people of God. And notice, as Isaiah speaks here in in verses 1 through 7 of chapter 9, he speaks in the past tense. As a prophet, it is like he has been transported forward and he is now looking back on these events and talking about them as if they had already happened. Because God is going to make them happen. It is a sure thing. It is not a maybe. It is a definite. It's not a matter of if this will happen. It is a matter of when this will happen. And so Isaiah is talking about these things in the past tense. But there will be no more gloom for her, for Israel, who was in anguish. In the former time, he, the Lord, brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. They had rebelled against the Lord. He had turned his face against them. But now he will bring blessing upon them. But in the later time, in the future, he, the Lord, has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. Zebulon and Naphtali, They're located on the far northern end of Israel. Matter of fact, they're in an area that is in large part populated by non-Jews, by Gentiles. And he says this was the first place where the light will shine. It's the first place where the attackers from the north will come. And Israel has had plenty of those. In this case, it's the Assyrians who are bearing down on the north. Pretty soon it will be the Babylonians who are bearing down on the north. After that, it will be the Greeks who will bear down on the north. And after that, it will be the Romans who will bear down from the north. But after all of these things, what will happen? Verse 2. Verse 2 will happen. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, of them, on them has light shone, has light dawned. As opposed to having no dawn, as opposed to being a place of darkness, as opposed to being the place where the foreign country's armies invade first, this will be the place where the light of Messiah will shine first. Galilee. Galilee is the region of Israel where Naphtali and Zebulon's lands lie. Galilee. Who made their home in Galilee? Jesus did. Jesus made his home in Galilee. Turn, me, turn over to Luke chapter 4 with me real quickly. Luke chapter 4. Luke in the fourth chapter. We'll 
We'll pick it up. We'll pick it up in verse fourteen. Luke four, verse fourteen. And Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee, and a report about him went out through all the surrounding country. And he taught in their synagogues, being glorified by all. As a, as a rabbi, as a teacher, he would have been invited to speak in the synagogues. Verse sixteen. And he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up. Oh, this is where. Jesus grew up in Galilee. And as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day and he stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. Now, when I'm reading something like this, I got to marvel, all right? What are we reading this morning? What are we studying? Isaiah, right? What did Jesus pick up a scroll of and read on this day? The prophet Isaiah. It's amazing. It's incredible, isn't it? Well, what did Jesus read from Isaiah? He picked up the scroll and found the place where it was written. He turned to Isaiah chapter 61 and verse 1, and he starts reading. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Jesus says, I have come to Galilee, I have come to Israel to proclaim the favor, the grace, the gift of salvation of the Lord. And he stops. He stops in the middle of verse 2. Why does he stop there? Why doesn't he keep reading? Because when he came the first time, he came to bring salvation. He came to bring good news. And if you keep reading in verse 2 of Isaiah 61, what you see is it starts to talk about judgment. And Jesus is saying here, by reading Isaiah 61 and stopping in the middle of verse 2, the judgment will come, but not yet. That will come at my second coming. That will come when I return again. Now, Isaiah did not see that, that distinction between the first and second coming. Like all the prophets, that's not clear in the Old Testament. So turn back with me to Isaiah chapter 9. Isaiah chapter 9. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. They have seen this Messiah, this Christ. Verse 3. Isaiah again looking forward in hope. You have multiplied the nation. Speaking about God, the Lord. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest. And they are glad when they divide the spoil. There is joy in the land at the coming of this one. Why is there joy? Three reasons given in verse 4, 5, 6, and 7. All are introduced with the word for. Three reasons for all of this joy. First of all, in verse 4, they are delivered from the oppressor. There is joy in Israel because of the deliverance this Messiah will bring. For the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulders, the rod of his oppressors, you have broken as on the day of Midian. The yoke of oppressors, the rod of, uh, the yoke of the burden, the staff on his shoulder, the rod of his oppressors. That's language from the Exodus. That's, that's, that's language from when God delivered Israel from slavery in Egypt. So now, God will deliver Israel from not only the burden of the nations around them, but from the burden of sin that encompasses them and swallows them. He is the one. This one will be the deliverer. He will free them from sin. That's the first reason why there is joy when the Messiah comes. The second reason is in verse 5. In the age of Messiah, 
It will be characterized by lasting and universal peace. Verse 5, For every boot of the trampling warrior in battle and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. These are the uniforms of the warriors. They won't be needed anymore. There will be peace and not war. You can get rid of all the implements of war. Burn them up. They aren't needed anymore. Because Messiah has come. And then the last reason. Verse 6. The climactic reason. is that a child is born and a son is given. Verse 6, For to us a child is born, to us a son is given. This Messiah will come as a human, with a human form a human nature for to us a child is born as from human parentage to us a son is given as from god the god man has come and he does come 700 years after isaiah writes this and he will come again at some point in the future. And when he comes again, this child, this son, will establish this kingdom that he's now going to talk about. And when he comes, the government shall be upon his shoulder. He will be a ruler. He will be a king. The government will rest on him. And his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor. Mighty God, everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. He will be, as opposed to the the kings that they have now, who are quite honestly pretty stupid and pretty dumb and make bad decisions and lead the nation in wrong ways, He is going to be a wonderful counselor. He is going to bring supernatural wisdom to bear on the nation and on the world over which He will rule. And He is the eternal God. This one who will be born is from the beginning of all time and to the end of all time. There is no time with this one. He is eternal. He is everlasting. He is God Himself. And He is eternal Father. Not in the sense that He is God the Father. We know that's not true. This is God the Son. This is Messiah. But He is the eternal Father in the sense of one who is always and forever a loving and caring protector of his children. A king whose task is to protect and take care of his people. The Messiah, Jesus Christ, this child who is to be born to us will carry it out not just as a king, but as a loving and gentle Father. And then the title Prince of Peace anticipates the peace, the total well-being that flows from a right relationship with the living Lord. This Prince of Peace introduces a reign of everlasting peace, a reign that will increase in peace over time, an increase of his government. There will be no end. And he will reign on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it. He is the fulfillment of the promises given to David that one will rule on the throne forever. Ultimately, it is the Lord who establishes this kind of peace. But while this is good news, such peace is reserved for those who trust him. 
There is no peace for the wicked, according to Isaiah in chapter 48. Those who trust God become witnesses who fully and gladly recognize that their reconciliation with God has been accomplished by the stone of stumbling and the rock of offense who is precious to us. Isaiah foresees someone who will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, but who is also called Mighty God and Everlasting Father. Here is an heir to David who maintains the Davidic dynasty not by passing it on, but by owning it in his own eternal reign forever and ever and ever. This is an amazing truth. Notice the last line in our passage this morning. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Who's going to accomplish all this? It will not be accomplished by human beings. It will not be accomplished by human means. It will be accomplished by the zeal of the Lord, by the love of the Lord, by the power of the Lord, by the grace of the Lord is how this will happen. And it will be an incredible time of rejoicing. Two final points this morning. First, this one who is our sanctuary, who is the stone over which so many fall, the promised child who was born to us, the wonderful counselor, the mighty God, the one who cares like a father and brings peace to our lives and will bring peace to all the world for all eternity. This Jesus is a dividing line. This passage, like so many in the pattern of the Old and New Testament, divide humankind into two groups. Those who trust in the promises of God in Christ alone for forgiveness and life, and those who reject and rebel against God and Christ and as a result face condemnation and judgment and death. The question is, who are you trusting in this morning? Which side of that dividing line are you on? And for those of you who claim that you are on the side of God, on the side of Christ, on the side of the stone of stumbling and the rock of offense. As things come up in your daily lives, as the trials and troubles of daily life hit you, where do you turn? What do you trust? Who do you turn to? Who do you trust? Is it your instinct to turn to the Lord? Or is it your instinct to turn to something or someone else. He is the God of all comfort. He is there to address our burdens and our fears. Second, I find studying the New Testament, like we had this morning, looking at the prophet Isaiah, reinforces the idea that God is sovereignly in control of all things and he always has been, and he always will be. The Bible teaches that God had planned and purposed the sufferings of the Christ. They were no accident, and they were no surprise to God. And in addition, that God himself had planned and predicted the rejection of the Christ, as well as his triumph. This was all in the sovereign purpose of God, as Peter said to the men of Israel on the day of Pentecost regarding Jesus. He was delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. So that these things were no accident and no surprise. One more question then this morning. If God has been faithful in keeping his promises and fulfilling his plans and purposes in Christ, and he has, Can we trust him to follow through and fulfill the promises and plans that he has put forward for a great and magnificent and wonderful kingdom when Christ comes a second time? Of course we can. Turn to Matthew 11 with me. 
We'll close with the words of our Savior this morning. Words of judgment on those who reject Him. Words of hope, words of deliverance, words of redemption, words of salvation for those who turn to Him. Matthew 11, verse 20. Jesus is speaking. Then he began to denounce the cities where most of his mighty works had been done because they did not repent. Woe to you, Chorazin! Woe to you, Bethsaida! For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. But I tell you, it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for Tyre and Sidon than for you. And you, Capernaum, will you be exalted to heaven? You will be brought down to Hades. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Sodom, it would have remained until this day. But I tell you that it will be more tolerable in the day of judgment for the land of Sodom than for you. At that time, Jesus declared, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Heavenly Father, We come to you this morning awed at the magnificence of your revelation. Father, we are in awe as little children before you of the magnificence of your plans and purposes, of your plan of salvation, of the child whom you sent as a baby in a manger, as the one who was given to us. Father, I pray that even today, our hearts would be turned to You. That as we labor and are heavy burdened with the toils and troubles of this life, Father, we ask for Your rest. We ask, Father, that we would take sanctuary in You. That we would take shelter in You. For, Lord, Your yoke is easy. Your burden is light. The life that we have in You is so beyond what we deserve for we are but sinners but yet Lord, you have provided so richly beyond anything we can ask or imagine i pray this in the name of our lord and savior of the stumbling stone and the rock of offense in his name i pray